To begin, we want to just clear the air. We want to have clear articulation of our speech, and we just want to clear the air while we're doing this podcast. Any negative energy out there, we don't want it in this room. Any creative energy that's out there, we want to suck that up like a sponge, so bring it on. Bring it on. All right. We're going to drink, and we're going to smoke, and we're going to talk about some true crime. All right. My story is about Ashley Mead. Boulder County, Colorado is where it takes place. Our story kind of begins on Valentine's Day of 2017. So I want to start off with a little bit about Ashley. Sure. Uh, She's very young, 25 years old. Um, She's ambitious at the point of her disappearance. She was an intern at a Head Start preschool. All of her co-workers and her family and friends, they describe her as being dependable and reliable. Something that is going to come up later on in the story is she would definitely let people know if she was going out of town, if she was planning a trip or whatever. Gotcha. Um, She also has a 13-month-old daughter, Winter Daisy, um, who she is in love with and would do everything with her. She, The baby was never out of her sight. She had her always with her. Um, that's also why she decided to work at the Head Start because she loved kids and she loved to be around kids. So that's just a little bit of what I gathered about her. I could, didn't find too much. Uh, most of all of my information came from Investigation Discovery's show on the case with Paula Zahn. I also have a lot of other uh, sources, a few other sources from like local gotcha. news, uh, Nine News and... CBS4 and other stuff like that basically is where I got all my information from. I do have a list of all of the people who were on the case as well, uh, DAs and detectives, and I'll mention them when they come up. We'll start, like I said, Valentine's Day 2017. One of Ashley's co-workers calls into the Boulder County Police Department to report her missing so she hadn't come into work that morning. Uh, I, I thought it was kind of odd because of how early it was, so they, they noted that I noted that it was like 9.20 in the morning. I don't know what time she was supposed to be at work. Right. But obviously, that speaks to her character if she wasn't there by 9.20. Gotcha. And her co-workers are calling the police. So she's a very punctual individual. Exactly. And wherever she's supposed to be, she's going to be there. Gotcha. On time. The police get it right this time. They go over to her apartment to do a welfare check same day. They go to the apartment. The first thing they notice is that her vehicle is missing. She has an assigned parking spot. Uh-huh. Her vehicle is not there. It's a white Volvo. Her car is missing. She drives a white Volvo. It's not in the parking lot. When they approach the door, the door is unlocked. I don't know why they said it wasn't a red flag. In my mind, in my opinion, that's a red flag. Sure. So the door is unlocked, but there's no sign of a struggle. They notice that the lights is on. There's a partially cooked meal in the kitchen. Food in the oven. The oven door is open, but it's off. Really? But it's partially cooked, like she was making a meal and then something happened. So the food was in the oven. The oven door was open, but the food was untouched. Partially cooked. Gotcha. That's the thing. As they're still searching around, they notice that her phone is at the end of the staircase. When they look at it closer, they can see that there's like a treadmark of a shoe on top of the phone screen. 
God so that's it. like something that's going to come back later. They noticed the phone, her ID, her driver's license is still there, her glasses is there. And I noted like, who leaves without their glasses? That is another huge big red flag to me in my opinion because who leaves without their glasses? Especially if she's driving, right? Sure. Um, the cat, her, she has a pet cat that is left unattended in the house. She would never go anywhere without this cat. That was the cause of concern for her mother because, like I said, she would never go anywhere without this pet cat. They don't say the cat's name or anything like that, but the cat's left unattended in the house. Now they're like, you know, of course police were like, well, she could have just picked up and left and just had to check out. or They pretty quickly ruled that out. Like, she didn't leave on her own accord gotcha. because things that she needs is still at the apartment and she's not there. Now they, they're contacting her mother. Uh, her name is uh, Claudia Bunce, I believe is how she pronounced it. She lives in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. um, they contact her, and like I said, she becomes concerned, became concerned when they said the cat was still there. Gotcha. Because like she said, whenever she traveled, wherever she went, she took this cat with her. So she asked them if they've spoken with her ex-boyfriend, Ashley's ex-boyfriend. His name is Adam Dinsmore. Mm -hmm. She also tells the police that Adam still lives in the home with her, in the apartment with her and the baby, Winter Daisy. But they're not together anymore. Their relationship is over, but they're co-parenting together. So they're living in the same house, but they're no longer seeing each other. Right. They're no longer together, but they're co-parenting. Sure. So he's missing too now, because we had no idea that he lived there. So both of them, the couple, are missing. And the baby. And Everybody, the baby. Everybody's missing. Everybody's missing. At this point. Wow. Police, like, they didn't know anything about him. Nobody brought him up to the police until her mom was like, well, where is Adam at? So they tried to ping his phone, but it's off. So they can't locate him at all. Dead phone. They can't figure out where anybody is. Yes. Now we're going to get into her last known whereabouts. The investigation basically begins mm -hmm. at this point, uh, especially after we figure out he lives there and he's also missing. Right. Last known whereabouts, February 12, 2017. Okay. This is two days before she's missing because, like I said, it's, she was reported missing on Valentine's Day the 14th. Her phone is there, so they're going off of her phone records and, yep. like, the stuff that's on the phone. At 11.15, she's at the Target. She has pictures of her on her phone of her mm -hmm. taking pictures of herself in a little black dress and she's like fully smiling cheesy happy right so yeah. no indication that she's planning on leaving anytime soon you know like this is not somebody who is going to be leaving later on that night or the next morning that's one of the pictures they find she continues to run errands she's in and out of the apartment all day as they can find the last image that they have of her is she spotted at a Sprouts with her and the baby. This is at 4.40 p.m. Mm -hmm. After that, one of her neighbors maybe about an hour later, they report her back at her apartment dumping her trash. Sure. All activity, including social media, ends after 8.40 p.m. Nothing else is going on. Nobody hears anything else from Ashley after 8.40 on the 12th of February. Mm -hmm. The police are doing their canvas of the neighborhood. They go to another neighbor's house and her next door neighbor reports that she did hear a loud noise coming from Ashley's apartment after 9 p.m. She describes it as somebody falling down the stairs, like loud thumps. Sure. And then after that, she didn't hear anything, but she said that it was loud and it sounded like maybe somebody was hurt, but not that anybody had been killed or died, you know? Right. As of right now, everybody's missing and they're kind of starting to get an idea of what's going on. Right. Putting it together. Her, like I said, her last whereabouts of what was going on that night on Sunday. Police discover detectives, they realize that she's been missing for 48 hours. 
since the last time that anybody heard of her or talked to her was on the 12th, and they didn't get any information until the 14th. So they're like, she's been missing for 48 hours. They are behind on her disappearance, Mm -hmm. basically. So then, like, kind of a panic is starting to set in because not only is she missing, but the baby, they don't know where the baby is, and also they don't know where Adam is at. So there's, like, a, a lot of, you know concern after they realize that it's been actually 48 hours since she's been missing mm-hmm. or since anybody last heard from her or anything. So they start to speak with everybody in her life, like close people to her relatives or and even the ex-boyfriend's relatives because he's the baby's dad. Sure. So, and he's missing too. So right. they start, they're just talking to everybody. They still haven't spoken to Adam at this point. They still can't ping his phone. They can't find him. They can't find him. They do talk to his parents who live in Louisiana. They tell them that Adam has just left with baby Winter after having a short visit with them. And now he's on his way to Arkansas to visit his grandma. The police are like relieved or whatever that at least they know the baby's okay and he's all right. But, you know, it's disheartening when they find out that Ashley was not with them. And the parents, they don't say why he said she wasn't with them. Mm Mm-hmm. Like I said, he's on his way to Arkansas to visit his grandma. So his parents solicit the information that on his route from Louisiana to Arkansas, where he's going to be is like off in the woods where there's going to be areas where his phone was not going to be in service. Like he won't be able to ping it from any towers because there are none. So he's going to be in some area where he won't be able to use his phone. And that's why police haven't been able to contact him because this whole time, you know, he's been driving around areas where... His phone couldn't ping, so he just had it off. But you were in Louisiana. You know, you made it to your parents' house. It's all bullshit. You had your phone off on purpose, in my opinion. So he's trying to cover his tracks by not turning his phone on, knowing that they can find his location if he turns it on. Exactly. Police call the grandma, and they say, when he gets there, tell him to call because Ashley's missing him. We need to talk to him as soon as possible. Sure. Finally, they are able to ping his phone. This is one of the times that it's on, I guess, and in the area where they can actually ping him. Mm -hmm. So they're getting his GPS coordinates, and they can see where he's been throughout this whole time. So when he left Colorado, he went through, like, Oklahoma and all these other places to get to Louisiana. After leaving Louisiana, going through all these other places to get to Arkansas. I don't know. Honestly, I don't even know how far it is in between. I don't think it's that far between Arkansas and Louisiana. I'm not sure. I don't know geography. <laughs> I don't know this country very well, apparently. This is a mile-high true crime podcast. This isn't uh, Ben and Tiffany's Geography Hour, okay? It just isn't. We're here to talk about true crime. We're here to drink. We're here to smoke. Yeah, if you want to go ahead and, and spark that bad boy up, I'm just yeah. going to go ahead and crack a cold one. All right. And we can go ahead and... Uh, all right. Just keep mm-hmm. moving at this nice keep. and chill pace because this is how we do it when we're a mile high. <laughs> like I said, they see where he's been um, his, by his GPS coordinates sure. and where he was pinging. So they know where he's been and they do, in fact, know that he is on his way to Arkansas. While this is coming in, I guess they're getting the information from Ashley's phone as well as his. Mm-hmm. And they determine that Adam has texted and called Ashley's phone numerous times since he's been gone. Um, and it's supposed to be about updates about the trip and, you know, where, where him and the baby is at and everything else. One of the messages that they come across kind of gives a, and I put a little explanation in, in parenthesis marks on why he is traveling alone with this baby. So he texts her, you have fun with him. 
indicating that Ashley had a new man in her life and had let Adam take the baby so that she could be with the new boyfriend. It's kind of how he's setting it up. Really? They further dig into Ashley's phone records and determine who the him is. Um, they don't say his last name, but his name is Harvey. Okay. Um, like I said, they never say his last name. It's probably because she he was just like a small fling in her life, basically. Like, And plus, they didn't want to give away the um, the last name because it's sensitive information. Right. You know, anybody named Harvey, he could be a host of uh, some uh-uh. sort of game show. Uh-uh. They just said Harvey. <laughs> and they also find out that him and Ashley met on some kind of online dating site, and they're they're into some kinky things. <laughs> I like so, kinky. What kind of kinky things are they into? So they find out, like I said, that they met on a dating website. They don't say which one, but they do find pictures on Ashley's phone uh-huh. with her with this guy, and it's like some S and M type of things. Oh right, and bondage and things like that. Okay, and the the detectives. I don't know, there are a couple of squares or whatever. They don't know this woman. You know what I'm saying? They don't know her life. One of the detectives, and I believe this one, Jeremy Frezen, he was saying that he didn't want it to put her in a bad light. Because, like I said, everybody's like, she's very ambitious, she's very smart, she's pretty, she's all about her kid. And, you know, he didn't want it to put her in a different light to where they shouldn't be still looking for her, basically. And he was like, these pictures are a little disturbing, you know? Yeah, they're a little saucy. Yeah, so the, it's pointed the, the investigation in a whole nother direction <sighs> when this Harvey guy comes into play. And it could, and it's, it's looking like, oh, well, shit, maybe Adam is actually, what he's saying is the truth. He took the baby because Ashley wants to be with this guy. Now we have to talk to Harvey. Like I said, they find these pictures and everything, and they're like... <laughs> You know, did you hurt her? Because this is some weird shit y'all got on in these pictures and everything. So they finally contact Harvey. He agrees to an interview. So he explains their relationship. Obviously, it's sexual. It's their thing. You would hope so, right? (laughs) Well, yes. Like, they know each other intimately, and they're into the same shit, basically. So he is concerned when he finds out she's missing. He's also concerned when the cops are fucking talking to him. Like, I don't want y'all looking at me for her murder. You know, like, we did have this thing going on, but it it was just that, you know? Well, did Harvey know that she had a baby? I don't know. Wow. So they, like I said, they don't really get into it. And it, it brings a lot of speculation about what kind of person she was. And it's like, it still doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter what she's into. Like, what you do behind closed doors is definitely your business. You're absolutely but right. But it brings into some some speculation, you know, uh, just in my mind about that whole relationship and everything that was going on there, like, the p- period that she was in in her life. But just questions, you know, like, no judgment at all. Because it, what happened to her still doesn't... There's still a legitimate investigation as to her whereabouts. Right. And, and what happened doesn't define... What she was doing with this Harvey person doesn't define who she is as a person. No. So, whatever. But like I said, he's explaining their relationship. They are both into this S&M thing, bondage and everything. 
Like I said, he's concerned that she's missing. He's concerned that they're looking at him. But he is fully cooperative with them and has an alibi for the night that she went missing. So he was hanging out with friends and um, one of the friends that he was with lost her purse. And so she put in a police report about it and it's stamped and dated for that same day that Ashley went missing. They looked at his phone record to determine he was nowhere near her or her apartment or anything at the time that she became missing. So... He is eliminated as a suspect. We don't have any choice but to go back to you, Adam, because you was the last person to still see her alive that we know of anyway. And Adam's the baby daddy. Adam's the baby daddy. So they still haven't talked to him at this point. Like I said, they call his grandmother like, hey, as soon as he gets there, he needs to call us and he needs to let us know what's going on. We need to talk to him because Ashley's missing. So when he gets there, the grandma relays the information like Ashley's missing and he becomes hysterical. He's freaking the fuck out because he didn't know she was missing. Right. And instead of him calling police immediately while he's there, he gets back in his car and drives off. And he's like on the road, supposedly on his way back to Boulder. While he's on the road is when he calls police. This is several hours after his grandmother has told him that they're looking for him and that he needs to call them. What were you doing in this time before when you left your grandma's house to on your way back to Boulder. You know, so like, why did it take this time? There's this huge chunk of time that's missing from his alibi. Hours missing from this, from him being from the grandma's house to on his way back to Boulder. He calls them. He tells them. Eventually, he calls them, like I said, several hours later. He and Ashley got into a big fight the last time he's seen her. He left before it could escalate, meaning that before it can get physical, he leaves. And he takes the baby with him. And then that's why he's on the road. This is also why he's calling and texting her the whole time he's gone with updates about where he's at with the baby and what's going on and everything. He says he doesn't. He didn't think she answered the phone because she was still mad at him. Now, come on. I don't have kids. But if I just had a, a huge big fight, he was like, this is the biggest fight we ever had. If I'm having this huge big fight with my ex-boyfriend who happens to be my baby's daddy ain't no fucking way I'm not answering the phone to see where you are at with my child especially when they're saying that she's never away from this baby she's always with this baby and you know cherished and was extra devoted to this child you know and she sounds like the type of person that would be on top of it as a mother I imagine that would follow through as well right I need to know where my child is once again, it's bullshit. Like, there's no way that this woman wasn't answering her phone or responding to your text messages while you're gone after a fight with her baby. Like, I just, I don't see it. As a woman, I don't see that. It's unrealistic. It's unrealistic. It's unrealistic. So, anyway, he explains that he just thought she was mad and that's why she didn't answer the phone. He tells them, he's going on with the interview, like, you know, saying that they got into a fight, blah, blah, blah. And he went to go meet, see his parents. And after his grandmother told him that she was missing, he's hysterical because he also hasn't been able to talk to her. Hmm. Um, so now that's why he's on his way back to Boulder. And that's also why he didn't call them as soon as he got to the grandmother's house because he needed to hurry back and get back to Colorado um, so that he can see what's going on there. He agrees that he's going to come in to the police station when he gets back to Boulder. Gotcha. However... They're like, fuck that. We're not waiting around for you to come here. We're about to figure out what we can do to get you. So at this point, he's in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And, like, he's supposed to be on his way back here. So they're like, no, no, no. Like, we want 
we want that ass now. <laughs> and they still have, he's like, you know, the ba I have the baby. She's been asleep this whole time, blah, blah, blah. They still haven't been able to verify actually that she's okay. Like, they can't hear her or nothing. You know, she can't get on the phone and say, yeah, I'm all right. <laughs> you know, so they're like, nah, we're going to get you however we can. So it comes out that he don't have custody of baby winter ashley has full custody over her so it was against the law for him to take her over state lines and out of state so they arrest him for that mm -hmm. uh oklahoma police they arrest him for that so he's confused when they pull him over because he's already agreed to come in when he gets back to boulder but they're like nah 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 like we're we're gonna come to you and he's in <laughs> oklahoma at the time at the point yes he's in oklahoma they pull him over to get the baby they put her in child protective services or whatever immediately he lawyers up meaning he's not talking to the cops but he does talk to cps which child protective services if anybody doesn't know what that is so he ended up talking to cps and they recorded the conversation and he gets further into it as their fight and he's admitting that he slapped her and he's very ashamed because he's never laid a hand on her and that was also why he had to leave because he was very ashamed i wonder what she said i think well i'll get to it i'll get to what i think <laughs> because we'll never know i'll get to what i think happen well we'll talk about that here in just a moment <laughs> yes we will um so he like i say he's very ashamed and he admits that he slapped her and so because he's admitting that the fight was more than what he initially said they start taking pictures of his body when they're taking pictures of his body it shows evidence of a fight so this is not just a argument this is not just you slapped her and you left so uh, quick question what prompted them to search his body like they knew that there was some sort of altercation between the two and they wanted to verify that there wasn't any sort of uh, bodily damage to himself that might have been inflicted in the fight right because at first he's saying that they just had a huge argument and he left before it got physical but then he's telling them that he slapped her she's missing still you're with the baby you admit into slapping her you know i I guess they're just like, we just need to look at your body. Like, you know, we need to know what happened. It's clear that they were fighting. He has a bite mark on his chest. He has scratches and, like, gouges all over his hands and arms. Clearly, he was in a fight. Clearly, whoever he was fighting was fighting him for their fucking life, you know? They never say, like, if they matched the teeth mark to Ashley's eyes. Yeah, well, there's a huge difference between, you know, being kinky and nibbling on someone's ear and uh, taking a straight-out choke out of them. Exactly, and leaving, like, a whole bite mark, like... It's a, he has like a tattoo that says mama or mom or something, <laughs> and, like, right under that is, like, a huge bite mark you know like you can see it and like like i said there's scratches and everything all over his hands and arms and everything um eventually down the line i'm gonna try to get some pictures of that and put that up on our instagram page that's fantastic yeah i would like to get some visuals of it you know okay so at this point of seeing his body and noticing that he has the you know he's been in a fight he's suspect number one at this point 
but they don't have any evidence that anything actually even happened to her besides you know the circumstantial things as in like her phone that's it Mm -hmm. like basically and like accounts that they seen her on and it's not really circumstantial like that's proof that she was there at these times Mm -hmm. but you just have what the neighbors are saying like they don't have any foul play really because um there's nothing at her house except for her stuff so you know who's to say that she still didn't leave all that shit behind you know they still don't have any real evidence that a murder took place you know like they don't have any hard evidence that she's even dead to be honest Right now, she's just missing. They don't have anything like hard evidence saying that this is what happened. But as human beings, as people, as police officers, detectives, mm-hmm. it's clear, you know, that something happened to her because she was never going to be apart from this baby. And here he is rolling around with the baby and she's missing somewhere. So to a logical person, something happened to her, you know, but it's not about what you know, it's about what you can prove. So, at this point, they don't have anything until Adam's sister from Louisiana calls the police. Mm -hmm. They don't say her name. She calls the police, and she's like, you know, giving them an account of the last time she's seen him. So, she came over to the parents' house. She come home, either way, and Adam was there, and the parents were gone. He is shocked to see her. And he appears to be cleaning some shit up. So he has trash bags. Um, She smells a big aroma of bleach. Like, you know, something had obviously been cleaned with bleach. He tells her that he threw up in the bathroom. And so he had to clean up his throw up. And that's why the bleach is, like, overwhelming. But, so she let it go. The police officer said, well, the detective, excuse me. He says, well, you know, I think that she believed him. And then, you know, she started thinking about it more. And it was like, it was weird. But I think... And this is still just my personal opinion that when she found out that Ashley was missing, that shit came back. And she was like, this motherfucker was over here cleaning shit up and I smell a lot of bleach. And he was weird when he found out I was there. You know, she's like, that shit is fucking weird. And let's not beat around the bush here, people. When there's bleach, there's usually blood. (laughs) Period. You, You don't really need a lot of bleach to clean up throw up. You know what I'm saying? No. Excuse me. You you doing all right there, Ted? (laughs) Yes. Yes, it's hit that wrong. The story that the sister gives the police is alarming to them. They're like, what the fuck? You know, so while this is happening, they make it seem like it's almost simultaneously that in Oklahoma, somewhere in Oklahoma, a gas station attendant is throwing out the trash and happens to notice a purple suitcase in the dumpster. A purple suitcase? A purple suitcase. I don't have, I don't think I've ever seen a purple suitcase, but I can picture one in my head. <laughs> I've seen plenty because, you know, purple's my favorite color. <laughs> I, so I find it weird. If I seen that shit in the dumpster, I don't think that I would even think twice to get it out. Oh, come on. You've never, oh, you ne- no. you never dumpster dived? Never Not in my once. life. I'm like, I have a sensitive nose. I'm very worried about germs and shit. Like, there's no way I'm jumping in the dumpster. One man's junk is another man's treasure. That's what they say. <laughs> it's the truth. I, I just thought it was weird. Like, she jumped in the dumpster, but whatever. She notices this suitcase, and thank God she did. She gets it out. The detective said the curiosity got the best of her. And she opens it up, and there's a trash bag inside of it. Okay. And inside of the trash bag is a human torso. The arms and the legs have been removed. And the head. 
It's just the torso. This is outrageous. So it's just the torso, just the human torso. Just the torso. So while the police are being dispatched to go search the parents' house, uh-huh. this woman in Oklahoma has found this torso. They take it back to the medical examiner. Obviously, they can't determine the identity by anything else. They get it over to the ME, of course, and how they verified her is by a tattoo. So she had a, Ashley herself, she had like a gap. And she'd be smiling in all her pictures and everything, but she had a, a gap in her teeth. And so she had a tattoo of a smiling sun, but the sun had a gap in its mouth. So it was a very distinctive tattoo, you know, like, so that's how they end up verifying her, is by giving the description of this tattoo. And so her her family verified it, and through DNA, obviously. So again, people, tattoos to the rescue, it happens all the time. Sometimes investigators will come across a body and the only defining feature they have on them is the tattoos. Right. And you can trace tattoos, you can track tattoos based on artists, based on area. I think it's an important thing that they were able to find out more about these victims based on the body art that they wear on their skin. Yeah, that's something that we might need to talk about. That could be a whole issue on its own. Yeah. It does happen often enough that tattoos solve crimes. Tattoos catch murderers. Tattoos are magical. Pretty good. So that's how they identify her, by this very distinctive tattoo she has and DNA. Um, So because, you know, after they talk to the family or whatever, they're able to match the DNA. So they know it's her at this point. Now, it's no longer a missing persons case. It's a homicide case. And like I said, Adam is suspect number one still. Back in Louisiana at the parents' home, they have like a a tool shed out in the back. And so they find this grill, this grill cover, and on the inside of it is a lot of blood on the inside of this grill cover. Also, they find one of those electric hand saws, like one an Emmy would use or something. They find one of those in the shed as well, and it has blood and um, tissue. So they find that on the blade of the saw. Yes, in the parent's shed. So they test both the grill cover and the saw, and both of them come back positive for uh, Ashley's DNA. Mm -hmm. Meaning this motherfucker drove her from Boulder to Louisiana and cut the body up in his parents' shed. What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? When I was about 24, 23, 24, I drove to Louisiana from here, from Mm -hmm. Denver, and this is an all-day fucking trip, okay? Like, to leave from Colorado, to drive from Colorado to Louisiana... You, this is literally, like, if you go straight through, I believe it's like 28 hours or something. Oh, God damn. It's a long fucking trip, okay? We end up stopping because my, my auntie was driving like a bat out of hell, so we got to Louisiana <laughs> quick. We got to Shreveport, but we were going to New Orleans. So um, we had to stop and pull over because my mom and them wasn't there yet. No, long story. My point is that that's a long fucking drive. And you drove with her body in your car, in her car, from Boulder to Louisiana. To, okay. And then take her to your parents' house and fucking cut up her body in the shed. So they found the torso 
in a dumpster mm-hmm. in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. They also found the murder weapons, the tools. No. They found all of that in Louisiana. In Louisiana. In his parents' shed. And supposedly that's where he stopped first. Right. He went from Colorado to Louisiana. And then... Louisiana to Oklahoma. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Cut her fucking body up in his parents' shed. In any case, you're suspect number first because you lived there. Right. You were with this woman and you have a baby together. You know, so in any case, it will, it's only logical that you would leave. <laughs> but why would you go to your parents' house <clears throat> is the thing. Why would you... I mean, because they, they're going to be able to... And then, like, you run into, like, you, something that you're not accounting for is running into your sister. And then calling her, calling the fucking cops and saying, yeah, this motherfucker was weird and cleaning up shit. You know, because otherwise they wouldn't have no reason to search his parents' house. Right? So, so I'm like, it's only logical that you do it, but why go to your parents' house? That's very disturbing. Yes. So he has a motive. He's yes. jealous. Um, I mean, he's probably heartbroken, too, let's be real, but either way, no excuses for what this individual had done. Yeah, and it's more like we don't know, they don't say, and nothing that I could find anyway, even says why they weren't together anymore. Right. However, they do find a a journal of his, and I wanted to get into it more, but I couldn't find anything, uh, specifically... On the journal. Right. But I did find that they were like saying little quotes that he that they found that he said in there. He's basically a dark person. One of the DAs, I believe it was the uh, deputy DA. Um, her name is Liz, I believe. L-Y-S. Okay. Runnerstrom. She was saying it was like grotesque shit in this journal. And his animosity towards Ashley had been going on for years. Like building up, basically. And that's why I was like, I will come back to, I think that her relationship with Harvey um, kind of was a tipping point. All the reason why I say that is because they don't, like I said, they don't talk about their relationship prior to her being missing. And all they say is they were just not together anymore, but they were still living together. It also could be like an open relationship sort of thing, too. Right, because like I said, it was some kinky shit that she had going on with that other guy that she didn't know for a long time. And the the cops and the DA and shit, everybody is surprised by these pictures of her. So that's kind of weird. But anyway, like I said, what happened to her, none of that matters in light of what happened to her. You're it doesn't, absolutely It right. doesn't matter at all because I don't, I don't know. That was her business, you know? Mm-hmm. What you do behind closed doors is your business. <clears throat> so I do want to just really quickly... Bring up, like, Adams. Like I said, for a while, it had been building up how much he hated her mm-hmm. and what was going on. Like I said, I don't know what's going on in their relationship, right. why he hated her so much. Right. But they come across his journals, and there's just, like, one quote. It's not specifically to her, which I think speaks volumes about him as a person, not her, really. I don't, I don't you know what I'm saying? They, they say, I haven't been able to find anything where I could read the journal myself. But they, they're they saying that, you know, he's been going for her for a long time now. They have this quote in here that they have, and I found it also on 9 News, and it was also on uh, Paula Zahn. The quote is, I long to hit someone hard, and again, I want someone to feel the frustrated helplessness of a beating. 
they don't know how she died because of the condition of her body. They was never able to get the cause of death because he fucking cut her up. So we don't know what happened. But obviously he has bite marks and scratches all over him. She was fighting for her life. I don't know, like, something happened, like, it just was a tip of the, the guy that she was dating, he found out about it, and that just brought everything down, and they started fighting, and it got to a point of him actually killing her or whatever, but I feel like somebody to write something like this, like, I long to hit someone hard and again, like, the helplessness of a beating, like, that's somebody who methodically is thinking about what it would be like to beat someone. Not necessarily kill anybody, but, you know, like... Well, he's fantasizing. He it's fetish- like a serial killer in the making. He's fetishizing it. Yeah. He definitely wanted to do it. And, you know, just the circumstances of their relationship, whatever they were, is what I think caused her to be his victim. But I think there was some other shit going on there. You know, there's a lot of underlying shit going on in this story. <laughs> And I, I kind of want to get to it, you know, like, what? why did they break up? Was he into this same kind of kinky shit that she was into? You know, like, there's a lot of fucking questions. But like I said, at this this quote, I just feel like that's just like a making of a fucking serial killer. So, kinky shit aside, mm-hmm. what's going on with this baby? The baby, baby was alive and good. Baby and, safe. Um, I couldn't find who she's being raised by now. I want to assume it, it's her parents who are, you know, her family who was raising her now, but I don't right. know. And I couldn't find anything because I was looking at them because I wanted to end it saying where she's at. Sure. So up until that point, though, she was okay. He didn't do anything. He was a good dad in that aspect. Like, he didn't do anything to hurt her. Um, she was okay when they found her. That's when great. The cops in Oklahoma pulled him over. Um, so anyway, um, even with all that evidence of, uh, against him, like I said, they couldn't prove any foul play happened to her until they found her body. They still don't know the cause of death. So the defense was trying to use that in the case. You know, like, the prosecution still doesn't even know how she was killed. So, you know. But how do you explain her blood and shit being at his parents' house? Like, that's not a coincidence. <laughs> he killed her. All that evidence against him, he's never, he pleaded not guilty. And he still has never confessed to killing her. On April 4, 2018, he was convicted of all charges of murder. So murder and dismemberment and amongst other things. So he got sentenced to life plus 12 years in prison without the possibility of parole. Oh, man. Um, and he still refuses to say what happened that night and where the rest of her body is. So he's not coming clean. He knows. Why do you think he that is? He pleaded not guilty. I don't know, like, that's what I was saying. Like, I can't understand why you're pleading not guilty when her blood is at your parents' house. Do you think he's trying to, um, you know, paint himself in a better picture or he just doesn't want to admit his own guilt? Because I've seen people deny things that are right in front of you. Right. You know? And I think when people deny shit that it's clear that you did it but you refuse to admit it, I think it's hard to admit it to yourself that you did this type of thing. It is kind of like, it's almost like tricking your own mind. Like yeah. Like a Jedi mind trick. Well, he's remorseless. Like, all the clips that they were showing of him in, in, like, okay. First of all, anybody to plead not guilty to this, anybody who is not going to tell her parents while he was being sentenced, they have, like, a clip that I found on 9 News, um, that her dad is, like, asking him to tell them where her, the rest of her body is so that they can properly bury her. 
You know, it took them a year after she was killed to uh, properly bury her and to mourn her because they had they wouldn't release her body until after he was convicted. I mean, do something right for this family. <laughs> you know, like give them uh, tell them where her her head is at at least. Give the rest of her body and confess to it because they know that you did it. Tell them what happened that night. You know, like they deserve that. You're going to be in jail for the rest of your life plus 12 years. <laughs> He's pretty much denying the living victims of this story closure. Right. Which is criminal in itself. Right. It's wrong. And I also came across something about him. Uh, he's like signed up to be a pin pal. Mm. And so it's just like... So he's yeah. getting girls sending him pictures, oh, yeah. kinky photos. And um, that's why I said, what kind of shit is he into as well? I would really like to know why they broke up. Why they broke up at the very least. What happens behind closed doors is anybody, it's their own business. Yeah, oh yeah. And we never know that because what goes on between two people goes on between two people. You Damn. Know? Okay. So he's behind bars. He's behind bars for life plus 12 years without the possibility of parole. That is the murder of Ashley Mead, even with some unanswered questions that I have myself. That is my story for this episode. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. That is intense. That's fucking brutal. It is. I can't wrap my mind around cutting a body up. I can barely fucking clean a, a turkey. <laughs> I could barely clean a turkey for Thanksgiving, like, cleaning it out and shit. Like, I could barely do that, so I couldn't imagine what it is to fucking cut up a human body. Somebody that you were with, somebody that you have a child with. To cut up somebody's body in itself is fucking crazy. I feel like there's a part that everybody was missing, and that's these disturbing fucking journals. Like, this is just a, uh, that, what he said, is just a piece of what I was able to find. I would like to read the whole fucking thing because I feel like saying something like that in your journal is like, like I said, this is the making of a, a serial killer, you know, like he would have went on to do other things. If it wasn't her, it would have been somebody else. Toxic individual, mm -hmm. toxic relationship, baby in the mix. Baby in the mix. And she's a very beautiful little baby from what I've seen. I don't know what she looks like now, obviously. I don't even know who's like taking care of her, but. So I'll tell you what, um. Let's cheers to, to uh, winter. Cheers to winter Daisy. And to Ashley Meadman. May you rest in peace. Yes, and they got, we caught, they caught him, not we. They caught him and he's where he needs to be. No, I mean, getting these people off the streets, you know. Yeah. We're all on the same side here. Yeah, and like I said, I, I want to give a, a kudos to the Boulder Police Department. They responded right away. It's like I said, she was missing, you know, she just didn't show up to work that morning. That's within a few hours, and they're over there doing a, a, a check at the house. You know, it wasn't like, oh, she's an adult, she can take off, and she can do whatever she wants, get back at us in 48 hours. You know, it wasn't no bullshit like that. They went over there right away to check on her. Can I ask you kind of a question about the details yeah. of, like, the murder weapons and stuff? Did you happen to see photos of these things of uh, the saw of the saw or the saw blade i don't know if i recall the actual evidence like the actual police photo or if they just showed like, like a reenactment yeah yeah that's probably what's going on i can't on. recall honestly yeah. if i seen the actual i don't think i seen the actual picture of it well like that's the difference between like the shows when you watch the true crime 
TV shows. They do a lot of reenactments because it, it's basically doing what we're doing is telling the story of right. what happened. Right. You know, we're all trying to paint a picture here of what really went wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's my case. I already asked you earlier about how you feel about snakes. You said you don't really like the aspect of having to feed them live food. It's kind of cruel. Or it's natural. It's <laughs> nature. Yeah. It is, but it's an ugly side of nature. Uh, very much of what the type of subject matter that we talk about on this podcast. Uh, the Spider and the Fly, a Mile High True Crime Podcast. <laughs> so, today's story is about a real-life supervillain straight out of a comic book, and I'm going to have to do a quick disclaimer. I'm attracted to the stories where the individual in the story is so sick and twisted and demented that it's reminiscent of a villain in a comic book. That's the reality of the situation. We try to keep things lighthearted on this podcast, but we do support victim advocacy 100%, and we're not here to aggrandize the crimes of the people in the stories that we talk about here on this podcast. I present to you the latest face in our macabre rogue gallery, a man guilty of three confirmed murders, tomfoolery, tomcatting, gaslighting, sidestepping, flimflammery, and all-around hogwash and hootenanny. <laughs> Major Raymond Lasenba, the rattlesnake murderer. Join us as we delve into the twisted coils of Rattlesnake James, a mile-high true crime story that's crazier than a snake's armpit. <laughs> I-O. <laughs> uh, you could describe Rattlesnake James as a sex-crazed predator, a serial womanizer, a slippery scammer, so slimy that he'd slither past investigators in ceremonious style. Okay. This is the story of a man with the cold heart of a snake. A man that would lie, cheat, and steal like a snake. A man who would bind his victims and squeeze the life out of them. He would even shed his skin like a snake. Suffice it to say, he had a serious selection of acceptable aliases. He would shed his skin, like figuratively or literally? Figuratively. Okay. So he's a skinwalker. Okay. A shapeshifter. All right. By any other name, he would change his form and his representation of himself. His real name is Major Raymond Lasemba, but he would go as Major Jackson Lasemba. Later change his name to Robert S. James, also known as Ray James, also known as Robert Sherwood, also known as Bob. <laughs> Jesus. He was probably known best by his name, the Rattlesnake Murderer. For the sake of this story, I'll be referring to the man as Rattlesnake James or Robert S. James. Dubbed the Rattlesnake Murderer on account of attempting to murder his wife with the deadliest weapon of all, love. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, actually, the deadliest weapons in this case are two very violent, venomous, diamondback vipers. Thank you. Venom. Okay. Mary Emma was one of the many wives that would have the misfortune of being betrothed to Robert or Raymond or Jackson or Bobby or whoever Major Lasenba felt like being that day. <laughs> whatever his name was, the game was always the same. A little bit of grifting, insurance fraud, and whatever else he could get his slippery hands into. Before we snack on the details of this story, allow me to set the table. It's the early 1900s and our story starts in Hale County, Alabama. Major Lasemba was a slicked-back, 
fast-talking sack of sleaze that escaped working the post-Civil War Alabama cotton fields by inheriting a sum of $4,000 as being the sole benefactor to his uncle's life insurance policy. $100,000 uh, if it were 2020. So, so, will you get into why? Like, why the uncle left the money to him? Yeah, so the reason why he got the money in 1895 is because that's when the uncle died. Okay. And Ray Lasemba was actually born in... 1894 a year before he had to be 18 before he actually got the sum of the money that he inherited okay mm -hmm. so this is just the start of the story it gets worse in fact he would actually make a habit of inheriting uh life insurance money throughout his entire criminal career he moved out of birmingham alabama and left his old world behind lasemba would marry his first wife a woman named maud duncan in 1941 he enrolls into barber school as per his brother-in-law's request. So that's his sister's husband. Okay. And they'll come back later in the story because he actually abuses their kindness in the story multiple times. Things started to turn around for him, but his new life would be short-lived. It wasn't long before Maude ended their three-year marriage, uh, divorcing Lasenba for sadistic cruelty, claiming that he would perform kinky and sadistic sex throughout their entire relationship. Wow. Uh, a grim foreshadowing of things to come. So Major Lasenba moves from Birmingham to Kansas to start a new life. He opens up a barbershop and meets a woman named Vera Mae Vermillion, who he marries and is living together with her parents all together and her brother in the same place. But he just couldn't keep his little snake from slithering where it didn't belong, and he would eventually be chased out of town by the shotgun-yielding father of another woman who he got pregnant. Going around having babies everywhere, huh? Oh, it gets worse than that. He left her to care for the baby all by herself. Cause he left her when she was pregnant. But I'm going to be straight with you here. I think she's the one who dodged the bullet. She eventually moves to Topeka, Kansas. Mary is an electrician, living happily ever after. Around this time, Major Lasemba changes his name to Robert S. James. It's likely that he always used this as an alias. It could be another made-up name. Again, the guy would change his name all the time, change his personalities to match whoever he was around. He was a shapeshifter. He was a skinwalker. Chameleon. Chameleon. Meanwhile, the year is 1932, and Robert S. James isn't getting any younger. He's in his late 30s, two failed marriages under his belt, and had numerous failed businesses he still opens up yet another barber shop. Uh, this time it's in California. He marries his third wife, Winona Wallace. Within three months, she's dead. Whoa. And some very interesting questions arise regarding her means to de of death. Do you know how long they were together before he married her? So this period of time, right after the Great Depression, uh, women are desperate. Any man with a little bit of change jingling around in their pocket is going to be uh, the type of man a woman wants to be with because... Things are tough. Realistically, he had something to offer women financially. He also took care of himself. He kept his hair really short, clean-cut sort of guy. He just didn't really show a whole lot of emotion, was kind of indifferent to people. People would say he had little beady eyes. I mean, he's Rattlesnake James. He makes a complete transformation into something that is a reptile. After marrying her, the two of them share a very brief honeymoon here in beautiful colorful Colorado, but not before Robert James takes out a pair of $5,000 life insurance policies for the two of them. A practice that he would again continue to exploit throughout his murderous career as a criminal. <laughs> Supposedly, the newlyweds were navigating the side-winding roads that are a trademark of Pikes Peak Highway that overlooks the mountainous terrain outside of Glencove, Colorado. 
Robert S. James claimed to be looking out the window through a pair of binoculars with Winona driving when the car left the road. It was reported that the car had careened off the cliffside before tumbling down the steep side of the mountain and hitting a large boulder head on. When aid had arrived, Winona was found in the passenger seat. A number of other peculiar details started to surface. She was in the passenger seat. He's a bad liar. Yeah. And he does it so often that he probably not keeping track of how many lies he's spitting at people. But it's, it's hard to keep track of your lies. He had so many of them, he was starting to believe his own bullshit. Mm. Um, she smelt of alcohol when she was uh, found in the car and had a massive wound right behind her ear on her skull. Um, it looked like something had bashed her in the back of the head. And that was in fact the case because oddly enough, when they investigated the car crash, they found a bloody hammer in the back of the car itself. They just ruled the whole thing off as an accident. They didn't make any point of the hammer. It was a bloody hammer. They let that slide. The whole fact that it's a fact that you were able to research and it came up means that a lot of eyebrows was raised. Like, what in the fuck? Y'all just ruled it off? This is very suspicious. Yeah, he'd be getting, he'd be raising a lot of eyebrows yeah. in the next couple years as we'll, as we'll find out here. So, how many wives is this? This is third wife number this three? This is his third wife. Now, okay. I kind of want to emphasize this is his first murder on paper that we can really track. And there actually is a paper trail to his murders because he was the type of person that would uh, take out life insurance, uh, life insurance policies on his wives and family members mm -hmm. and systematically kill them almost as soon as uh, those policies were in place. Shit. Family members too? Yeah, family members too. He eventually murders beyond a number of wives and nephew as well. Wow. And uh, we can speculate. I don't want to say that he murdered his, his own mother, but he did take a life insurance policy out on his own mother. If not to kill her, at the very least to benefit from her death because that would be his M.O. the whole time. Okay. The entire time. Despite being thrown down the side of the mountain and crashing directly into the jagged rocks below, Winona James was found alive but in extremely rough shape. The details of the order of events that led before this are kind of wishy-washy. Uh, it happened in 1932, and again, they just chalked the whole thing up as an accident so they didn't even pay any mind. They just assumed that she got injured during the crash. He got her drunk hit her with the hammer mm -hmm. in the back of the head and pushed the car off the side of a mountain because she was in the passenger seat and he said that she was driving. Again, he was beginning to believe his own bullshit. Yeah. And the whole thing doesn't make sense. Well, the whole thing doesn't make sense because <laughs> how are you alive and well? You know what I'm saying? Even if she was driving and you were the passenger... How the fuck are you alive? Well, it's funny you should mention that because they did make a note that he looked relatively unharmed. Yeah. Like, completely unharmed, and his wife is... In bad shape. In really bad shape, but she's alive. Yeah. But not for long. Right. She was rushed to the hospital, much to the dismay of Mr. James, who had made up enough lies to deflect the situation of foul play for the moment. Uh, the details of the actual murder of Winona Wallace are sparse, but we do know that he killed his wife in a cottage in Manitou Springs. After pretending to discover his dead wife, Robert James openly speculated that she slipped and fell in the bathtub. He insisted to the coroner that his wife ignored doctor's orders uh, so she could wash her hair and died as a result. But what actually happened was he pulled her out of bed, filled up the bathtub halfway, and drowned her. He killed his third wife, drowned her, made it appear like it was an accident. Since his wife's death was perceived as an accident, he would go on to collect the $14,000 and attempt to promptly marry again. Fortunately for Ruth Thomas, she had enough sense to realize what her husband's angle was 
when he tried to uh, take an insurance policy out on her. She told him, <laughs> people you insure always die of something strange, she said. Mm -hmm. She filed for divorce soon after. <laughs> she escaped. She's safe. Yeah. She lived on to tell the tale. Yeah. And she had enough sense because she didn't ignore those red flags. Undeterred, Robert S. James continues to cash in on the suffering of others. In 1933, he inherits another life insurance policy, this time from the death of his mother. It brings him back to his home and see his family in Alabama. Uh, as I said earlier, he's from Birmingham. Yes. And it sets the scene for yet another murder. Uh -huh. uh, my speculation is that it may unli be unlikely that he killed his own mother. We don't have evidence that proves that. I said earlier in the podcast that he may have just strategically benefited from her death. Um, which is pretty sinister considering it's his own mother, yeah. but he obviously didn't have any sort of compassion for anybody in his life. His next victim was his very own nephew, a man named Cornelius Wright. So Cornelius was a sailor. He invited his nephew to see him while he was on leave. The purpose of this visit was to take out a life insurance policy on his own nephew. During this time back home, he would continue to sink to a new despicable low as he successfully seduced his 18-year-old niece. Gross. That doesn't gross you out now, it gets worse. Oh my gosh, it just keeps getting worse with this guy. It keeps getting worse with this guy. So yeah. Cornelius would soon die in a car accident driving off a cliffside mm. in a vehicle that Robert S. James had lent him. This time, he learned his lesson. He sabotaged the vehicle in advance. Um, <laughs> The uh, mechanic that towed the wrecked car away noted that there was something wrong with the steering wheel. Robert S. James would go on to collect the insurance money on Cornelius, his own nephew, before fleeing Alabama to escape his understandably distraught family. He would not be traveling alone. He would be bringing along his young niece to keep him company, keep him warm at night. Oh my gosh. Yes. So, so how are these people like his nephew and he's like, do you know, is it like his brothers, kids, his sisters? Was it his nephew that he killed and took a life insurance policy. But it's his sister's son. Yes. Okay. And that nephew's sister is actually his niece. Right. Okay. The one that he's running off with. So his sister's daughter. So he just like fucking up his sister's kid's life. That's his niece. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Twisted. Right. Twisted. <laughs> Twisted. Okay. <laughs> Yes, and gross. Keith Sweat. Was that Keith Sweat? <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> so, he'd go ahead and collect the insurance money. He ran off with his young niece. She would eventually fall in love with him as well. So he caught her all twisted up in the game. Oh my gosh. Straight tripping, boo. He moves to California with his young niece. He would open up another barber shop and commit the heinous act that would earn him the moniker of Rattlesnake Jane. He marries a woman named Mary Emma Bush and she works as a manicurist. Now what happened to the niece? Oh, so the niece is living with him, but in public she's... His niece. His niece. Back home, she's his little fuck doll. Ugh. He, like, how old is she in this time? Like a teenager? She's 18. 18. So okay. she's of consenting age. But a But she's, she's still very young. Yes. This is her uncle. Right. That's disgusting. Disgusting. And uh, <laughs> this incestuous relationship would eventually cause him more problems in the future. Okay. But allow me to explain. Okay. All right. So he marries a new woman. Mary Emma Bush. He actually had been seeing Mary on the side before Ruth Thomas, the woman who annulled her marriage with him, uh -huh. um, before that was even finalized, he was on to the next one, like Jay-Z. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Okay. <laughs> so he takes out a $10,000 insurance policy on his new bride. He wasted no time whatsoever. It was all about the insurance scam for him and the sadistic sexual urges that he had to satisfy on a daily basis. Mm, kinky shit. He's really gross. He's not even kinky. He's really gross. He's gross. It's disgusting. The whole thing's just fucking gross. But he definitely played the role of Uncle Daddy to his young niece. Okay. The whole time, he was also having copious amount of sex with the niece who uh, lived with him and depended on him financially. This disgusting fact is important to the story. He's the snake charmer. He's a snake armor. Part of what made Robert S. James such a diabolical character was that he was both charming and cunning. You already saw the picture of him, slick back, beady eyes, looks good in a suit. That's his whole game. He flim-flams people. He's a trickster. He's a skinwalker. He's a shapeshifter. His victims were beautiful young women, naive, desperate during the Great Depression. So, he was a daddy. Right. That explains a lot. That explains everything. Yeah. And his whole game was murdering these women, benefiting from their death. You know, mustache twirling. Yeah. Um, <laughs> top hat yeah. wearing fiend. Uh... What is that from? That's Dick Dastardly. Okay. That's basically who he is. Yeah. Okay, he's a living fucking cartoon. Like, he's a cartoon character. Yeah, um, he's dangerous. Despite specifically killing for insurance money and committing uh, fraud numerous times, he would often insure his victims through different insurance agencies to cover his trail. Uh, it was his dastardly history of collecting insurance for multiple quote-unquote freak accidents that threw up red flags when he tried to insure his newest wife, Mary Emma Bush, that led him to getting caught. Before he was caught by the police, James decided that he would kill Mary in the most super villain way possible. He decided to spice it up this time and kill Mary Emma using two venomous rattlesnakes named Lethal and Lightning. <laughs> yeah. But why rattlesnakes, you might ask? Uh, Robert S. James was inspired by the story of Cleopatra's Suicide by Snake. Architecture and culture was kind of experiencing a thing called uh, Egyptian revivalism. Uh, the architecture would reflect that kind of uh, Egyptian motif. He was inspired by a sideshow when he was walking with his pregnant wife uh, when he got the idea by seeing snakes behind glass inspired to use the snakes as a weapon to kill. He realized that the venom of the snakes would be the perfect murder weapon. Most of all thought that he could make it look accidental. He had a plan to kill his pregnant wife, wife number five. He bought the snakes from a guy named Snake Joe, a snake man that lived in Pasadena. He previously bought two snakes from him, but they were not very angry snakes. He wanted some pissed off, mean, aggressive snakes, and the two snakes that he bought apparently were too soft for his needs. So he traded those two snakes in and bought some other snakes half price, and these snakes were just mean and aggressive. Was it thunder and lightning? No. Lightning and lethal. <laughs> the Southern Pacific rattlesnakes, the most common venomous snake in this part of the country in California where they were staying at. I did read an article that, said, that stated that diamondback snakes were used in the murder. I couldn't find what sort of snakes in particular, but it's likely that it was the Crotalus atrox, the western diamondback rattlesnake, which is native to this part of the country and would be the most likely culprit. Tricking Mary would be the easy part. She woefully became pregnant with the child of Robert S. James and heavily considered having an abortion. Robert S. James would hire somebody to pose as an abortionist 
to enact his evil plan. Throughout this whole story, he's flim-flamming people, he's tricking people, he's grifting people, he's doing all of these things. He can't even be bothered to get, like, a real abortionist to perform a real abortion on his real wife <laughs> that he's planning on killing for life insurance money anyways. Did you, like, research to see why, what was her reasoning for wanting to have an abortion? She just didn't want to have this evil baby in her belly. <laughs> but she's married to this guy, you know Yeah, but saying? he's a piece of shit. He's a scumbag. Yeah. He only cares about himself. He already left one kid. The only legitimate children that I could find on this guy, yeah, his first wife. He got her pregnant. It's a crazy. Ta a tapestry of yeah. a bullshit. I just have to imagine that he has money to keep all these people around at his disposal. He's got money. He's taking life insurance people, <laughs> uh, insurance policies on people he knows. Yeah, but that's what I'm, I'm saying. Like, for you to just go out and hire somebody to be an abortionist, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. you have to have money or an uh, extremely good mouthpiece to get somebody to agree to something like this. Again, he was also very cheap, very frugal. He couldn't be bothered to get a hold of a real doctor. He hired this guy named Charlie Hope. Now, let me tell you a little thing about Charlie Hope. When you think about, like, a comic book goon, like, some sort of goon that, like, Batman takes out, like, six of these dudes before he, like, fights the main villain. This guy is a straight-up goon. He's an ex-hot dog stand operator, <laughs> uh, but he gets his hair cut at... Robert James is what he's calling himself these days? Yeah, so, at his shop. Right, at his barber shop. So yeah. he's a good client of his, the buddy-buddy, and he hires this guy to pretend that he's an abortionist oh to gosh. perform this fake abortion on his wife. But... What actually happens, he gets her drunk, he ties her to the kitchen table, blindfolds her, gags her with duct tape. So she's drunk so she don't remember any of it? Right, so she's drunk. He tricks her into getting completely shit-faced to take the edge off because she's nervous about the whole thing. She's getting sketchy vibes from this quote-unquote doctor. Mm -hmm. But what eventually ends up happening, she's bound to the table. They bring in a box of rattlesnakes. The two snakes we talked about, they have them in a cardboard box. They grab her feet, and they stick her feet in the box. Robert James does this. Yes. Charlie Hope is complicit in the murder of his of wife. Of course. A little thing about rattlesnake venom. Do you know how uh, rattlesnake venom affects the human body? Do you know what it does? I don't. Rattlesnake venom basically coagulates the blood in your veins, uh, making it turn into jelly. So it fucks your whole system up. The yeah. whole neurological system eventually shuts down when there's enough snake venom in your body, at least with these particular types of yes. venomous rattlesnakes. Best advice, they say, is that you should seek help within 30 minutes because one bite, one fang is enough to kill four human beings. Wow. And if they bite you with both fangs, then you are probably going to die if you do not get help immediately. They say contact a poison control center, but in 1935, I don't really know what the equivalent would be in this part of California. And that wasn't the plan in the first place. No, it never was. Yeah. It never was. They suggest to stay as still as possible because the more you move, the more your blood will pump, the more it'll turn into jelly, the faster it will kill you. Okay. Robert S. James orchestrated his entire plan to kill his wife and make it look like an accident. To add to this illusion, he also suggested to have dinner guests the following day. His plan was to have them discover the body so it would look like a, oh my god, a complete accident. Yeah. You know, to add a little bit of flair to his twisted charade. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately for him, his wife wasn't dying fast enough, so he leaves. He has to tend to these guests that he's going to have the next day. Mm -hmm. uh, so he leaves his wife with Charles Hope, and he's paying this man to kill her, to do her, to, to take her off the map. What ends up happening is she is drowned in a bathtub the same way that his last wife was, 
and she is actually thrown in the garden, a um, fish pond. When his guests eventually arrive, they discover his wife face down in the pond. They assume that she she fell and it was an accident. So yeah. <laughs> she fell and she drowned in the fish pond. Yeah. So, so we, they find her the next day? They find her, yeah, within within I mean, the day that his dinner guest, guests arrive. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's 1930, what? 1935, I believe. So, like, not really, I mean, I... Is the Emmy able to count the time of death at this time, or... Well, nah. the, the body's fresh enough for them to see that she recently died. Okay. Okay, so they did notice at the crime scene that her leg was completely black. Yeah. The leg where the snake bit her, but right. oddly enough, they didn't notice any sort of snake bite. She died face down, is what they thought happened. They marked it off as an accident. How dumb. Yep. <laughs> I mean, why couldn't you just wait for her to die? Like, it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, at the very least, the police didn't have enough uh, sufficient evidence to prove that there was foul play. Okay. So they were suspicious, but they didn't have enough to actually arrest Robert S. James. Okay. They had their doubts, but, you know, money talks. So maybe that's what it was as well. Uh, this move of being suspicious and having his wife drowned would eventually come back around and bite him in the ass. With a twist of his mustache and a flap of his cape, Robert S. James proceeds to collect his insurance money along with double indemnity, but insurance investigators are not convinced. Yes. No. The investigator on the for the insurance company noted that Robert James had been married multiple times. It was his third wife who had died of questionable circumstances, and he took notice. He reports the incongruency to the police, who have their own suspicions, and the detective bug James's home, hoping to find details of the murder, at the very least, whether or not he's doing anything illegal. Sure enough, the phone bug pays off. Robert S. James, confirmed sexual deviant, is found out to be having sexual encounters with numerous women, which isn't illegal, I should know. <laughs> but the bug also reveals that many of his sexual encounters were with his young niece who lived with him. So this is how the whole thing was found out, that he was fucking his niece the whole time. Well, who was he talking to on the phone about that? I think I may have screwed that up. I think they may have just bugged the house. Okay. So it's just a mic of a hot mic listening okay. to all the bullshit all the time. They uh, eventually pin him on incest charges. At the time of this being found out, they didn't really let any of the details to the press know that he was a murderer yet. During this time, the short period of time, he was known as the Barbershop Bluebeard. And apparently a bluebeard is somebody, someone with money who grooms a younger bride or something like that. Charles Hope is arrested shortly after. He's the guy that helped him kill his wife, bragging to his bartender that he was complicit in the murder of Mary Emma James during a hard night of boozing. So, uh, loose lips sink ships. Police told Robert S. James, who remained tight-lipped, he didn't want to be a victim of his own blabbermouthing. You know what I mean? So he didn't say shit. He lawyered up. He's a rich guy. He can afford it. He didn't say shit. But his case eventually got bumped up to the Supreme Court so this was like the biggest court case that have ever happened in this uh, part of California at that time, uh, La Cañada, California. Okay. The Supreme Court would eventually express curiosity about the police beating him under their custody and breaking protocol. By this time, they actually were investigating that. He was convicted for uh, the death penalty. He was a sorry sack of shit, slipped around in a snake skin, sliding, slippery. Was he in jail for? I thought they got him for incest. They, they got, got him, him for... They got him for incest. Uh, so he was having sex with his own niece. Right. They brought him in for incest. 
But later, once his case actually went to the Supreme Court, that's when they started finding all these details out. Okay. That he was beaten in custody, but again, they, they didn't really do anything about that at the time. After all these details come out, the police pretty much beat a confession out of him. He admits to the plot of murdering his wife. After all this information comes out, they exhume Mary Emma's body. That's his, the wife that he killed with the snakes. They exhume her body. They pull her out of the grave so they can perform a post-burial autopsy on the woman. The medical examiner noted snake bites on her toe that were initially overlooked. And there was swelling in her leg as well. They noted the severity of the snake bite. The, the medical examiner said that if Robert S. James would have been more patient, the snake venom would inevitably kill his wife because yeah. she wasn't dying quick enough. So basically, uh, Charles Hope threw James under the bus saying that he killed his wife. I'm pretty sure that Charles Hope killed Mary Emma. Right. And I think he was being paid to do the job because uh, he didn't want to get his hands dirty. There's also things that I saw that said that he actually still had feelings for her, Robert James. Yeah. But again, he's a snake of a man. Yeah, he it's doesn't care. Right. He's he's already killed multiple people at this point. Yeah. Um, he's committed insurance fraud numerous times. Oh, by the way, every time he crashes a car as to one of his schemes, car's insured. So he's collecting insurance money left From and right. The car. Everything he's doing is a fucking wow. scam. Like I didn't he's, even think about that. Yeah, so that kind of rolls into everything. He's been bullshitting the whole time. But on June 22nd, in 1936, Robert S. James would have a five-week trial following his incest conviction, but it would not be without controversy. It is noted that James opted out of hiring an attorney because, again, he's so cheap. Penny pincher, despite having thousands of dollars, and he thinks he's so smart that he represents himself in court. Of course, I'm just waiting for you to say that. Right. It's just like the next step in a psychopath. Psychopath. Yeah. During the trial, both the snakes were brought into the courtroom in what was described as a glass coffin. The snakes would lunge at the jurors in their box, and they were highly aggressive snakes, so they were, like, jumping at the glass, trying to attack the people behind the glass. There was venom dripping from their fangs onto the glass itself and dripping down the glass. It frightened everybody in the courtroom. So James spent the entire morning pleading his supposed innocence after he was on the stand in court. Lethal, one of the murderous rattlesnakes, escaped captivity and slid under a bookcase causing Snake Joe, because he's called into court also to testify. Fortunately, he was in the courtroom because he wrangled these snakes that got out of this quote-unquote glass coffin. Yeah, so... It's like a fucking fiasco in the courtroom, huh? Fiasco is what I have written down here. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a fiasco. A fiasco. Uh, Snake Joe took the stand to testify against Charles Hope, who was the one he actually had contact with the snake. So I don't think Snake Joe ever met Rattlesnake, Rattlesnake James. James. I believe they had to throw the court out. They had to throw that whole day out and start again because it was just, it was sensationalized. Famous horror legend Peter Lorre was in the courtroom and he actually based a lot of his serial killer performances off of uh, Robert S. James. The judge tells Charles Hope, the man who helped him kill his wife, he gets life in prison. The judge sentenced James to death. He got the death penalty for killing at least two wives and his nephew based on the evidence that he, after he got caught, he confessed to. So they convicted him of yes. those three. They knew something was up. They knew yeah. that 
they needed to get answers from him, and that's basically what the the confession was about. They kind of beat it out of him. They kind of made it under duress. I understand that he's a, a piece of shit, but the whole thing was mishandled by this would be Los Angeles police. Of course. They beat a confession out of him, and that's how they found out that he was actually murdering this whole time, not just banging little girls. It's fucked up that the police do that, but in the aspect of him, where he's like confessing to these murders right you know whatever you have to do in that case sure <laughs> what do you think happens to him when he's on death row he actually turns to the bible oh god yes so he was he, found and saved again he was found he was saved again he was once blind but now he can see <laughs> he becomes a holy roller while in uh while in pres- prison he's got should have seen that coming should have saw it coming yeah too little too late mm-hmm. thanks god mm-hmm when you're sentenced to death. He's trying to save his eternal soul. <laughs> uh, he actually gets the nickname Holy Joe, which goes to tell you that he was still using aliases while in prison because his name is Robert S. James, Rattlesnake James, Raymond Lasenba. Fuck, there's so many of them, dude. Like, during my research, like, it was a madhouse trying to put together this story just because the sources are all over the place. Yeah. They're all shaken up. And right. a lot of them contradict each other. Yeah. Um, the Murderpedia page is a goddamn nightmare. The, <laughs> the Wikipedia pages... Let's just, let's talk about our sources here. So, Wikipedia is... Not my main source. A lot of my research came from independent newspaper articles mm-hmm. in the California area. Okay. The LA Times is cited as one of my main sources to help me kind of sort out the whole chronology. But it was all over the place because it is a fucking puzzle. This is before forensic evidence. This is before fingerprint databasing. He was actually sentenced to the death penalty in California. He's the last man in California ever to be hung. Wow. Get this. There was a couple things that went wrong during the execution of this man. They used a rope. It was just a little too long. And what happened after they pulled the hatch on him, his neck didn't break. I think what happened was it's supposed to break if it's a proper length. Right. If it's too short of a length, they're just going to sit there and they're going to asphyxiate. But if it's too long of a rope, uh, the body will bounce and start to swing. Apparently it took him... 10 excruciating minutes to die so he was just kind of sitting there eyes bloodshot and red body starting to twitch the perfect perfect cherry on top for the type of sick sadistic skinwalking shape-shifting son of a snake yeah he met the end that he deserved i'm sorry you know to Mm -hmm. feel like that but that's what it is so there's actually some first-hand accounts from the warden of the San Quentin State Prison, which is the facility he was killed at, a reporter asked him, so, uh, warden, how do you feel about this one? You've never had to officiate at a hanging before. Warden Clinton Duffy replied, I don't want to discuss it right now. The execution did not go as planned. It was not humane. The reporters were shocked by his response. They told him that they couldn't print that in a newspaper. He said, I know you can't, but maybe it would help if you could. (laughs) It would do the people good to know exactly how their mandate was carried out. Every juror, whoever vote for the death penalty, every judge, whoever pronounced the sentence, every legislator who helped pass the law that made it necessary for us all to go through the ordeal would have been with me today. Ladies and gentlemen, those are my reactions. I have nothing more to say except that this was the most terrible experience of my life and I pray to God 
I will never have to repeat it. I literally do not know what to say. I am on both sides of this fence, okay? This man killed his own family and was, like, marrying these young, gullible women at a time after the Depression where, you know, they're scrounging for life and they're vulnerable. He's taking advantage of that. He's getting them pregnant. He's leaving them. He's doing fake abortions and still killing them along the way, like, crashing cars like a very terrible person. And it may not have been humane, and maybe you need to tweak some shit, and hopefully you don't have another execution. But let's not praise him, you know what I'm saying? I agree. Let's not dwell on the fact that he didn't have a humane execution. No, and you know what? He didn't deserve a humane execution. Right, what about these people? Yeah, no, I, I'm completely with you there. Yeah. Um, if it makes you feel any different about the story, that warden, they were real close. Oh, okay. Uh, they had some sort of weird prison camaraderie. Yeah. That's okay. all that was. Sick man, sick death, shit in, shit out. <laughs> Researching this story, if I knew it was going to be such a can of worms, I would have literally done any other, anything else <laughs> for the second episode. Um, so his actual obituary read Major Raymond Lisenba with uh-huh. Robert James in parentheses. Uh-huh. He left all of his possessions to his sister... The one who he's fucking his daughter and no. killed his... Okay. <laughs> no, he left all of... That, that That would be adding insult to injury. That'd yeah, be some bullshit. What? You yeah, know? what? But you'd think he would have. He killed his nephew. Yeah. He, he had her up in the house. He had an ancestral relationship with his own, yeah. his own niece. Right. I don't know if he had it out for them or what. Like, that was yeah. just cruel. Like, it's, it's crazy just, to it's just crazy. keep hitting at the same sister. Yeah. Like, it makes me wonder, it begs the question, like, what did she do to him in life, you know? Yeah, so, actually, no, his, um, that sister did not get all of his possessions, all of his land, all of his barber shops, all of his failing businesses, um... <laughs> That was actually left to his youngest sister, Ava Murphy. And I okay. think just because I don't think they really knew each other as well as yeah. the rest of the family. And she was like, fuck it, I'll touch it. I'll take what I can get. Right. Because it was, it was still hard times. Yeah. But we do have his uh, grave plot here. If you're ever at Block 4, Lot 531, at Elmwood Cemetery in Birmingham, Alabama, nobody's really going to shed a tear if you piss in that fool's grave. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. I'm not advocating it, but I'm just, just going to say it. You know, whatever, whatever. That's how I feel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the story of Rattlesnake James. Good. Good, good job. Yeah. That was a good story. Yeah, and I do have a couple notes after our previous podcast. The name of the national park that you butchered on our first episode ever. Yeah. Uh, it's actually pronounced Uncompagre. Uncompagre. Uncompagre National Park. It's actually a Ute Indian word, which uh, loosely translates to dirty water. Red Lake or Red Spring, okay. and it's likely a reference to the many hot springs in the vicinity of Oray, Oray, Colorado. I've been there. It's beautiful. Never heard of it. They call themselves the outdoor recreation capital of Colorado. A uh, bold statement. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it is. And that's, okay. Well, thanks. That's the that's Rattlesnake James. Rattlesnake James, good job. All right, and that's all we got for you guys tonight. Unfortunately, these are sad times. We do not have no piece of cake for you tonight. But, you know, maybe next week we'll have something a little bit more positive for you. Is there anything you want to say before we cut this one loose? 
Uh, no, just if you are listening, if you listen to our first episode, if you're listening to our second, thank you very much. And if you have any constructive criticism for us, we would like to hear it. Only that, though. We don't want any of your negative shit. <laughs> right, 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 right. But thank you very much. From the bottom of my heart, if you are listening to our podcast, I appreciate it. A lot of work goes into it. Yeah, yeah. So thanks for listening. If you haven't yet, listened to our first episode, The Spider and the Fly. And um, be sure to find us on Instagram and YouTube. All right. Thank you. Bye. Y'all have a good night now.